morning, y'all. It's um, it's good to be back out here at the well. As Justin said, um, this is uh, this is something we do every year. Uh, every May, every May, we come back out here, and this is where we started. Literally, right here, almost eight years ago, we started our church right here uh, by the well. We wanted to get in the heart of this town, and uh, we figure the well is just that. And so. Um, this is a way for us to get back to our roots every year and remind us of where we where we started. And uh, it's kind of a beautiful thing, too, because wells are often like the center of towns, kind of an epicenter for people. Throughout history, it's been that way. And um, they're a place that, that bring life to a town. Um, I grew up in a little small town in North Carolina called Eden, North Carolina, and um, it, uh, it's just a little speck on the map, but I grew up with uh, in, a, in a family of tobacco farmers, and uh, on a big tobacco farm. And where I grew up, we had a well because it was far away from city water. And so behind my house, there was this well that was there, and I was always curious about this thing. Um, it was weird. It was just about the size of one of these mats here, and uh, just a cover over over the ground. But I knew that there was something deep there. And it always piqued my curiosity. Like, what is it that's in there? But my dad had pretty sternly said, uh, stay away from that well. Don't go near that well. Uh, but being a, a, a small boy, that only piqued my curiosity more. And so I remember there's like a little hole in the cover of this well. But uh, so I would take rocks and like try to, I would stand far from it and throw it and hope that it would make it in that little hole. And then if it did, I would listen to try to hear the rock hit the bottom. I never heard it, but my curiosity was always just full for this, this well. What is it? What's under there? What does it look like? What's at the bottom? That all changed one day in 1987. I was four years old, and most of you were, were not born then, so you won't remember this. But if you're older than me, you probably will remember this. In 1987, there was an event that happened that locked up all the TVs, everyone, every, every, if you turn the TV on, it was on TV. There was a little baby named Baby Jessica. You remember that? That's ringing a bell now. Baby Jessica was a little baby in Texas. And she fell into the well, and for 60 hours, all of America watched. It was on every channel that you could, that you could see, waiting to see what was going to happen with Baby Jessica as they tried to rescue her. Lo and behold, after all that time and everyone sitting around the TVs, baby Jessica was rescued, brought back to the surface. And me, the curious four-year-old, uh, went from curiosity over a well to fear. I, I stood clear of it, walked around it, <laughs> would not get close to it. Um, so that was that. But for most of history, wells have been a big part of humanity. They bring life. They're a source of nourishment. And so for every town... Um, for the majority of history, I guess modern plumbing is kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a new thing in the span of humanity. So for most of history, wells have been a, life, uh, a life-giving source for humanity, and you'll find them at the center of every town, just like this well here. And um, today, this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 4, and you can go ahead and flip there if you want. Um, we're going to be looking at a story, the woman at the well. And looking out at this woman who goes to the well seeking nourishment but walks away with life. 
Now, God's design in the Bible is that we come to know Him through the text, through the Scriptures, but also that we come to know ourselves. Um, so this morning as we read through this, this, uh, this book, through John 4, I want you to keep in mind two things. Number one is, who is this man, Jesus? And number two is, who are we? As we see ourselves and look at ourselves in light of the woman at the well. So I'm going to start off here in chapter 4, and we'll just kind of read through it a little bit and, and make some stops and notes as we go through. It says, Jesus learned, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize them as disciples did. So he left Judea to return to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. And I want to stop there um, for a moment. So Judea is uh, where we see Jerusalem and Israel. It's on the southern side. And Galilee is on the northern part of the country. And so here's this journey in between uh, that, that Jesus was going to make. And um, the thing about uh, the, that journey was there was a, a town in between the two called Samaria. And Samaria uh, had a group of people called Samaritans. And the thing about Samaritans and Jews, they didn't get along. There was a deep, deep-rooted history between the two of dislike and turmoil. And so most Jews, if they were on their way to Galilee, they would take the scenic route and go swing way out by the Mediterranean Sea or they'd walk up the Jordan and just bypass Samaria all the way. But if they had to, they'd go through it and keep it swift. The deal is with Samaritans, they're not so different from the Jews. They both were Hebrews and both uh, were from descendants of the same ancestors really the division happened in the days of exile where some Hebrews were taken captive by Babylon and taken off into exile but there were a small number that were left there in, in that promised land and as the, the Hebrews that were taken to uh, Babylon for exile they were there for years but those other group of people they wind up marrying some of these Babylonians and some of the some of the other people that had come into that land and, t and taken it captive. And so, years later, when the Jews uh, came back to the Promised Land were let were let go out of exile, these folks that had been there for the long haul, the Jews then looked at them and said, "Well, you're not a pure race anymore because you've in, you've you've bred with these other folks." And so there was turmoil from then on out with them. They they both had different places that they saw to worship. The, the Samaritans worshipped at this place called Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. And it was a dividing force ever since. And so they didn't talk to each other. They didn't have dealings with each other. They despised each other. So if you were a Jew and you were going to go to Galilee, you swung wide and went around Samaria. Or if you did go through it because you had to, you kept your head down and you didn't talk to anyone, you kept moving. But what I find interesting here in chapter 4 is this in verse 4 it says he had to go through Samaria on the way and the Greek word there that we see for this word had is a word edi and it means divine necessity and we see that happen a few times throughout the book of John divine necessity so this word had Jesus had to go through Samaria 
To me, I read that and interpret that, that he had a plan. There was a divine necessity. Um, he could have went around it, and most of the time they did, but he had to that day. There was a reason for him going through Samaria. It's, a, it's approximately 65 miles um, from Jerusalem to Cana in Galilee. And uh, that's a pretty long walk. Uh, I've never walked it that, that far in, in, in one journey. Um, but I looked, I was curious, so I looked on Google Maps. Like, what is that? What does that relate to? So if I were to set out from here at the old well, 65 miles uh, would take me to my hometown, Eden, oddly enough. Which Google says is about an hour and a half drive or 25 hours of walking. Also, most people probably don't know where Eden is. So Winston-Salem is another about an hour and a half drive or 25, uh, 25 hours of walking. It would be like setting out from here and walking to Winston-Salem. That's a pretty long haul for us just to walk. So we, look, we carry on here. In verse 6. Um, or verse 5 rather, eventually he came to a Samaritan village, Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. I see here, this is another thing, Jesus grew tired. We see the incarnation that this is God himself, but he's fully fleshed. He's grown tired, he's grown weary. And in verse 7, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Um, Now, we just said just a second ago that Samaritans and Jews, they don't interact. They don't associate with one another. So this is a big no-no for multiple reasons. One, we have Jesus who is a Jew and the Samaritan lady who has just come to draw water from the well in her community. And Jesus engages her in in a conversation. This is a big no-no for that culture. He's a man, she's a woman. That's a no-no in that culture. Uh, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, another, another no-no. Um, and also he's asking her for a drink from her cup, which again, like Jews viewed Samaritans as unclean people. So this was just a, a big thing, culturally unacceptable for, unacceptable for Jesus to do this. But we see Jesus do what he often does and turn things around. So, let's move on to verse 9. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied to her, if you only knew the gift of God that God has for you, and who I am, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. What I see here Jesus is doing is he's starting his pursuit of this woman. I think all along that even when he set out on this journey to Galilee, he had in mind what he was going to do. He was pursuing this lady. And I think maybe I'm interpreting that when it said he had to go through Samaria, that he had a plan. And it was to to pursue this, this woman and to capture her heart. So Jesus fires an arrow at her and tries to capture her when, when, she, uh, when he asks for this water. He's opening the door, opening this conversation. If you only knew 
the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. But she dodges this arrow. Not because she's avoiding him, because she has a heart that's full of sin and it's blinding her to, to her need for him. And here he's going to keep communicating and try to remind her and let her open her eyes to see. You have a need for me. You have a thirst. But she replies with this. You have nothing to draw from the well. And it's a deep well. Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? Now Jesus knows how deep this well is. He probably could have told her exactly how many feet it is. And he doesn't need a bucket. And certainly he's greater than jo- Jacob. And the water that he offers is certainly superior to the Jacob's well's water. So he responds to her with a luring response. Let me tell you more about this water. It's not like the water of this ancient well. The water I give you is life-giving water. Drink it, and not only will you never be thirsty, but you yourself will become a fountain overflowing with life. Now he's piqued her attention. She's gone from like being totally oblivious and just trying to shut him down to she responds back, Sir, give me some of this water so that I don't ever have to come back to this well. He's got her attention now. He's got her right where he wants her. He could have done a number of things here. He could have pulled out a camel skin canteen and said, Here's your water. Drink and be thirsty no more. Um, But here we see Jesus do what he so often does. He goes for the heart. He's trying to capture her heart. He wants to pull back the layers to expose the heart of the matter, her problem, her sin. So he fires one more arrow. Go get your husband and bring him back with you. Well, she she dodges another arrow here. This one's going right for her heart. Go get your husband. She says, oh, oh, but I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. Can I just get this water that you're talking about? Don't worry about that. Don't worry about my life. I don't have a husband. I just want this water you're talking about. At this point, Jesus puts away the bow and arrow and he draws his sword. He's pursuing her. He will have her and nothing will stop him. He strikes for the heart. You are right, he says, when you, have, when you say you have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the man you are with now is not your husband. Now this is a big blow. He's calling her out, stripping back the layers. Here's a woman who's been coming to this well at noon during the middle of the day because she doesn't want to be seen by other people. No one else is going to the well in the hot of the day. They wait until the evening. But she's here because she's likely ashamed of her lifestyle. And Jesus just calls it out for what he sees. You're right when you say you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the man you're with now, he's not your husband either. Those are strong words, but Jesus knows that her blindness and hardness uh, to the inner spiritual meaning of these statements that he's given and of the living water that he's trying to offer is compounded by the effect of years of sexual and relational sin. And I can only imagine that at this point in her life, she's jaded and calloused and searching for fulfillment in the only ways that she knows how to get it, which is through men. Jesus wants to wake her to what, the true, to what her true desire is. She's full of desire, but she has no idea where that desire is rooted. So he's, he's, he's intentionally exposing 
her heart, pulling back these layers. And God means for, for this woman to have uh, to be a worshiper in spirit and truth. And we see that just a little later in the text. Jesus says that God is looking for people who will worship in spirit and truth. But in her present condition, she doesn't even have a, a living spirit. She's dead on the inside. She's dry on the inside. And she's blind to her need for this man who's right in front of her. And Jesus understands this condition perfectly. But he won't stay on the surface of things. He's pulling back the layers, diving deep into her heart. So he's called her out. No, you're not married, but you've had five men that you've been with before, and the guy that you're with now, you're not married to him either. He has, to her knowledge, he has no way to know these things. She's, she's looking left and right like, Am I on candid camera right now? How does he know this stuff, you know? And also, how do I get out of this one? You know, I've dodged these arrows that he's thrown at me from here before in this conversation, but this one, how do I get away from this one? I can't, so I'll deflect him. I'll try to trap him. So she says, so you're obviously a prophet because no one's ever told me everything about me like that. You're obviously a prophet. Well, prophet this. My people say that we are to worship here on this mountain. And you Jews say that you're to worship in, in Jerusalem. What do you know about that? She's trying to change the subject. She's trying to deflect, get the attention off of her. But Jesus isn't trapped. He isn't swayed or disoriented. He's still focused. He's still pursuing her and he will have her. So Jesus replies, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father in neither spirit, or you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is for the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worship the father seeks god is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth so the woman replies back to him i know that the messiah the christ is coming and when he comes he will explain all this to us and so then jesus responds back i am that guy i am the messiah the one that you speak of i am i am he now he has her. He has pursued her. He has thrown arrows. He has pierced with a sword. He's pulled back the layers and exposed her sin. Now he has made room in her heart to see and believe who he is. I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the living water. Take and drink of me and thirst no more. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to skip past some of the stuff that happens right there in the middle. Right then, or I'll paraphrase it really, right then the, the disciples come back. They've been gone getting food for Jesus. And right then they come back. And have you ever walked in on a situation that was like just so awkward that you had no idea what to do and the only thing that you knew to do was just ignore it, like, like it didn't happen? 
I imagine some of you are in college and have roommates. You know all of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that from days with roommates. Now you walk in on something and you're like, I didn't see that. <laughs> I think that's what is going on here. The disciples come back and here is Jesus, a Jew, their teacher, the Messiah, the Christ, sitting on a well in Samaria, which the Jews, they view it as a defiled, a dirty well, sitting on a well talking to a Samaritan woman and drinking from her cup. And here she is, likely all teary-eyed and snotty-nosed and puffy-eyed because he's just called out all these things. For, and they're carrying on a conversation. This is scandalous in that day. So here comes his disciples walking back. And they walk in on this. And what this, the Bible tells us they literally did was, it, it says it here that uh, they didn't say anything. That they didn't question it. No, hey, Jesus, what's going on? Is everything okay here? Uh, none of that. It says that the disciples did not ask a single question. So I just thought that was funny. It kind of it, it piqued my interest that they walk into this scandal, and uh, I'm sure, surely they were whispering to each other, uh, what's Jesus doing? But they never said a word to him. They never questioned him. We see that in verse 27. So moving on, the Samaritan woman leaves her jar there at the well and rushes into town. Because this encounter she's just had with this man who told her everything that she is. And said, I am the Messiah. I'm the one. I'm not just a prophet. I am the Christ. I'm the living water. She has this encounter and her eyes are open to here he is. This is, this is the one. This is the Christ. He's told me everything of who I am. And he's offering living water. So she leaves her jug and she runs into town and she tells... All the folks, which I found intriguing as well, because here's a lady who was just coming to the well midday because she didn't want to be around people. She didn't want people to see her. She didn't want people to uh, to see her so they wouldn't talk about her or start whispering all these things. She leaves her jug, runs into town, and she starts telling everyone she sees. I just met a man by the well who told me everything about myself. Surely he is the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus said earlier, if only you knew who I was, who I am, then you would ask and I would give you living water. And you would thirst no more and inside of you would become a fountain that would overflow. And that's exactly what happened here. When she got a glimpse of who this Messiah was, when she got a glimpse of Jesus, she was filled with him. To the point that she runs out into the city and is overflowing with life, with the Spirit. And this begins a Samaritan revival. We go on through this chapter and we see that many Samaritans came to believe in Jesus that day. All from this moment. That's what's happening here. A well of water, not only quenching her soul, but overflowing out into the town. Here's a woman who was scandalous. Some would call her a prostitute who now is leading a revival among these Samaritan people, people who are coming to find and know Jesus. She was dry and hardened with sin on the inside. 
and her lifestyle was a sign that she had a deep desire for something. And she thought it could only be filled by men. But when she believed, and when she saw, and when she drank of his cup, into her he pours life to the point that it overflows to everyone around her. Earlier I asked, when we started this morning, I asked, look for two things in this. Who is this man, Jesus? And then where do I see myself in this woman at the well? Who is this man, Jesus? Jesus, he is Lord who pursues people relentlessly. He hunts us down. He pursues us. He chases us. He's after our heart, and he will have it. He meets us in our mess. No matter what our life looks like, he meets us right there, just as he did this woman. And in our mess, he meets us with grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Here's this woman who he threw arrows after her heart over and over again, and she dodged them. And he poured out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace with her until he had her heart. And he aims for the heart. And the reason that he pulls back the layers and exposes the sin is to help us see our great need for him, our great thirst for him, so he can meet it and quench it. Now ask this, who are we in light of this woman? As we see this woman, we look into our lives. What do we see in ourselves? What do we learn about ourselves? What we learn about ourselves or what I see for me are some of the subtle reasons why our understanding and love for Jesus is so small. We have sin or bondage that blocks us from being filled with this life-giving spirit that Jesus is trying to pour into us. Verse 10, we take it back to that. It said this, Jesus said, If you only knew, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is for, You would drink. You would ask for it. And he would pour it. And you would drink. And you would be given life-giving water. And you would thirst no more. If you only knew. I thought of that this week multiple times over and over. If I only knew. And so many times we walk around carrying bondage or carrying guilt or shame or burdens or whatever these things are that plague us. And if we only knew, if we only thought to turn to Him and see Him as the Christ, the Messiah and believe that He would pour living water in us. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who turned water into wine. We saw that just before this chapter. I'm the one who healed a sick child just with my voice. We see that just in a couple verses ahead of where we're at right now. And I am the one who raised a man from the dead just by calling his name. We see that in chapter 11. And I am the one who raises myself from the dead by my own power. And you walk around with burdens and guilt and sin. And let me tell you, I am the one who offers so much more and I am the one who can take those from you. And I want to do a work in you, just like this woman. I want to do a work in you, transform you, renew you, and fill you with the Spirit. If we only knew. If only we would see 
Not as some see him, not as some faraway God who's up in heaven raining down, not as some, some tyrant dictator or judge, but see him as Lord, as lover of our soul, as the God who will pursue us. Then we would ask and he would take that burden, he would take that sin, that fear, that shame, that guilt, and fill us with life and overflowing of life. One night earlier this week, I know this is going to be really weird. Um, one night earlier this week, I had a dream. And um, I debated, I was telling Justin, I debated whether I'd even share this because it's kind of weird. And dreams are sometimes, and I don't know, it may have been like I had some really spicy barbecue for dinner on Thursday night, and that may have been what led to it. But I felt like the dream was sort of prophetic, so here it goes. I feel like I'll share it. I had this weird dream on Thursday night, and um, in my dream I was holding a bottle, and it was just an empty bottle, but it had a cork in the top of it, and water was being poured out, and in my dream I wanted to open the cork, I wanted to get the cork out so I could fill this bottle with water, but I couldn't get the cork out, I was pushing it with my thumbs, I was pulling it, I could not get it out, so in the dream I'm doing that, I'm doing that to no avail and then a hand appears I know this is weird maybe it's the barbecue I don't know but a hand appears with a corkscrew and pulls the the cork out of the bottle and I'm able to fill this bottle in this flow of water and it's filling the bottle and pouring out all over my feet all over and I woke the next morning just thinking about that dream oh my goodness that was crazy (laughs) and just really trying to interpret that for my life I feel like the Lord is saying, you know, there are areas in your life for all of us where maybe we have a cork or we have something that's blocking the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the Lord is wanting to pour into us. And by our own strength, I can do nothing about it. I can't pull it. I can't push it out. By His hand, He can pluck those things from us and make room for an outpouring, a filling of His Spirit within us, of life. So some of us have those things, a court, sin, shame, guilt, fears, things from our past, whatever it may be, that burden us and prevent us from being full and filled with this Holy Spirit, with this life that He's wanting to pour in us. In the caverns of our heart, rather than being full of life, have little nooks and crannies of sin or corks, these little things that are hangs up for us. And some of us find ourselves in a routine of drinking the same old water, going to the same things over and over, thinking that they're going to quench our thirst, only to find that we have to go right back to them. Meanwhile, he's pouring out water. He's an endless fountain of life. Saying, I want to pour into you. Come, drink, and be filled. So I know that was a weird dream. I felt like the Lord was asking me, and I'll ask you, what are the corks in your life? What are those things that 
are blocking little crooks and crannies and little caverns in your heart from being full of the Holy Spirit, being full of life that I'm trying to pour into you? What are those things? What are the things that you can't let go of, but if you let me, I will take them from you and transform it and fill you with life? Is there hidden sin? Is there fear? Is there a burden from your past? Is there shame and guilt? Is there bondage that you just can't let go of on your own? But me, the Lord, if you'll let me, I'll pluck them from you and replace them with life. Maybe today is the day that the Lord is wanting to meet you at the well. Maybe the day is the day that there's something in you that He's saying, let me take that from you. Let me fill you with life. Let me quench your thirst and fill you. Every cavern of your soul, every cavern of your heart, let me fill you with myself until you're overflowing with life. He says, come to the water. Take my cup. Drink. Be filled. And thirst no more. I'm going to pray, and um, as we pray this morning and close out, I'm just going to let you have a time of just reflection and think about that. Allow the Lord to search your heart, search your soul. Are there things that we can surrender to Him? Are there areas of our life, are there caverns of our soul or caverns of our heart that we need to rend to Him and let Him pluck so he can fill us we'll have an opportunity just to do that just to say Jesus here I am will you pray with me Father we we just confess that we need you We confess that we have tried to find pleasure in things of this world. You are all that satisfies. You are the one thing that our souls thirst for. We are hungry for you, Lord. We are thirsty for you. Jesus, we invite you to uproot and pull out the things that are not you in our life. Jesus, we invite you to pluck bondage from us, to pluck sin from us, to pluck areas of shame or guilt or fear or hang-ups or addictions. Reach into us, Lord, and pluck those things out. Pull them out, Lord. We invite you. We surrender to you to do that. We ask you in Jesus' name, Lord, to pour yourself into us, to fill us until we are overflowing. Fill us, Lord, like a spring of life. 
and we turn our hearts and our affections to you. We rend ourselves to you. We surrender to you. Fill us, Lord. Fill us. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. And we call on you. Amen.